American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Texas versus the feds at the border, plus the Barbie movie finds the Academy as part of the patriarchy. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Medal, and Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a Nash Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are How the World Works and Bound by Oath. We'll learn more about those podcasts in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we've had this brewing dispute between Texas and the feds at the border. Several months ago, Texas began saying, you know what, you're not enforcing it. We're going to start enforcing it with our own agents and our own barriers in the water, barbed wire. Uh, on the on the shore, and this has led to uh, you know uh, a, a big legal case. And the Supreme Court five four said no, we are not going to continue this a stay against the federal government tearing up the barbed wire. And Governor Abbott has said, well, you know what, the Fed has abdicated. The Feds have ab- abdicated their responsibility here and broken the compact between the federal government and the states, and we are going to proceed uh, um, with, with all, with all uh, due, due speed. And you have various Republican governors saying, you know what, Greg Abbott is right. What do you make of it? Well, um, you know, Abbott is basically right. I mean, he, he is right by the Constitution. I think his reading is, is uh, plainly right. He's also right by the law of ne- pure necessity, right? That the, the the president has has abdicated his duties here, uh, and but the need still exists, and so um, what what this amounts to, I think, is a very politically potent challenge to the president, uh, basically defying him of like, if you want an open border, you're going to have to nationalize te- the Texas National Guard and open the border yourself because we're closing it uh, as far as, as we can. Now, you know, Abbott may be being a little bit cun- extra cunning here, right? Of course, this is an election year. The border is going to be a major uh, albatross around Biden's neck. But the Biden administration has kind of jawed with the Mexicans in order to slow down the, uh, you know, the human caravans, etc., so Abbott is, you know, maybe getting ahead here and we'll be able to, to be, it'll be very easy for Texas to declare some success because I think people are already expecting that there's going to be a lower flow. 
going forward. So I think I think it's a politically brilliant move. I think it's the most you know powerful move a Republicans made against Biden since DeSantis sent the plane to Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and the best immigration politics since Greg Abbott bust migrants to yeah. other cities where they, where they wanted to go or, or cities in the Northeast where they wanted to go. Yeah, so Maddie, I just think the the images of the federal government tearing up barbed wire meant to, to exclude illegal immigrants who shouldn't be coming here from the country is just, it's just devastating wherever the legalities of this uh, fall. Yeah, I mean, you have this image of this barrier along the Rio Grande. And it was obviously that there's a symbolic value in that as well. It functions as a, as a disincentive. It sends a very clear message. You can't come here. We're closed. Uh, we take border security seriously. And then, as you say, you see um, this being lifted uh, by the federal government and just migrants just walking in. And those images speak a thousand words. Um, and it's important to note that the Supreme Court's decision to allow the federal government to take down this uh, this barrier. Um, it was basically saying it was a political matter, not not a judicial one. So it didn't order Texas uh, to do anything um, or not, it didn't order Texas not to do anything. I think Andy's written very cogently about that for us. Um, and so, as Michael says, Texas is within its rights to do what it's doing. Obviously, it's not really great that... Um, that we have this this disconnect. I mean, this is very dramatic language that there's a broken compact between the US and the states, um, but it's not without precedent. I mean, federal law has been disregarded in recent decades with various cities and states declaring themselves sanctuary states and cities and, and not um, following federal law. And obviously the key point here is that Biden's policy is not federal law. Federal law requires um, the border to be secured and it requires the detention of illegal migrants, and that's not happening. And so you can understand why Texas is, is pursuing the course of action that it is. So Charlie, it, it makes sense to me that federal immigration law should prevail over state laws. If the federal government says a certain class of aliens should be permitted into the United States and Texas says, no, they, they should be excluded, it's the federal government's priority that, that should prevail. But in the 2012 case before the Supreme Court involving Arizona, kind of the, the same sort of dispute, not as dramatic at the border at, as this, but the uh, Arizona basically said, we're going to help enforce federal immigration law. And the, the Obama administration said, no, you're not. And this was put to the court. And the court went a step further than just saying it's federal law that should uh, prevail and has primacy here to saying it's it's the federal government's enforcement priorities that should prevail. And we should put sneer quotes around enforcement because the Obama administration didn't want to enforce the laws. And it was mad at Arizona for wanting to enforce the laws. Same thing uh, here, obviously. And if that same reasoning from 2012 prevails, Texas is going to lose and the Biden administration is going to win. But it's a question of whether that reasoning should prevail or, or actually will with this new court. Exactly. This I think is being covered prematurely in that much of the discussion of Texas's behavior and posture assumes that the Supreme Court has ruled and that the law is clear when it's not. I've seen criticisms of Amy Coney Barrett, and I've seen it asserted that Texas is violating a Supreme Court decision, which is not true. 
the Supreme Court allowed the federal government to take down barbed wire and so forth. It did not tell Texas to do anything. We don't quite know what happens in this scenario because this scenario is profoundly odd. Now, what we do know is that the federal government has primacy on questions of immigration and is supreme when its policy, as set by Congress, comes into conflict with those preferred by the states. We also know that the states are not obliged to help the federal government enforce federal law of any sort. That's why sanctuary cities are largely legal. Prince for United States is the case. It's a gun case, but it's applied to immigration here. The federal government cannot commandeer the states and make them enforce federal law. They can, of course, enforce federal law in the states, and the states cannot prevent them from executing federal law but the federal government can't commandeer the states. What's happening here is a bit odd, as you say. What's happening here is that the executive branch is declining to enforce the law that is laid out in statute and expecting the states to go along with that non-enforcement on the grounds that the federal government is supreme in the area. But the federal government is supreme in the area Positively, not negatively. The Supreme Court has, since Marbury v. Madison, upheld that principle. But the idea that a president can come in and say, I don't like this law, I'm not going to enforce it, and you can't either, is a separate question. And whether or not the decision, even in the Arizona case, would come out against Texas is unclear. So you've got a bit of a standoff, but it's a standoff that is premised upon a lack of mutual knowledge as to what the rules are, not that is premised upon Greg Abbott and, what was it, 24 other states now, defying federal law. Now, of course, if you read the letter that Greg Abbott sent, the one that has gained a whole bunch of virtual co-signers, it is designed to look somewhat defiant because the politics of this are terrible for Biden. And Greg Abbott knows that. Greg Abbott wants to force the issue. He wants Joe Biden to stand up and say, we are not going to allow the state of Texas to prevent the incursion of illegal immigrants because that's crazy. But as of yet, the law has been unresolved. So what you have here is a political dispute at root. So MBDX, a question to you. The federal government will end up nationalizing the Texas National Guard as this dispute becomes much more contentious and ugly before we get a legal outcome. Yes or no? No. I think um I think Biden's just not that crazy. Um and would feel like that that move was would be too dramatic and too too much of an own goal. Maddie. Uh, I agree with Michael. I think it's too incendiary. And so no. Charlie. I think the politics of it must preclude that in a sense, you would be once again, watching the inverse of what was expected (laughs) and debated at the constitutional convention. 
the reason the federal government has that power is that there was some fear at the time of the founding that state militias would fall into disrepair and that the federal government would have to take them over to ensure that they function, to fill some role. What we would be doing here is federalizing the state militia to prevent it from enforcing federal law. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't see how the politics would work, even if you could do that, which I suppose you technically could. Yeah, it'd be the logical culmination of Biden's perverse policy at the border the last three years. I'm also going to say no. I think the rhetoric and heat around this is is going to uh, in- intensify, but I don't think there's going to be you know, direct confrontation between federal or, or Texas forces or that Biden would go go this far to, to nationalize uh, the Texas National Guard, and then we'll see what the Supreme Court says. But you know, Biden realizes that this is a vulnerability. I think now, but I just don't think, as as we've discussed before, he can he can feels as though he can do anything about it directly without upsetting his base that he needs. This is an issue that's become like a, a abortion or, or affirmative action for the Democratic Party. So they have worked the uh, Mexicans. There were meetings down in December, and a lot of the conservative commentary was, you know, they, they got rebuked and humiliated by the Mexicans and said they're not going to do anything. But it turns out the Mexican government is is doing stuff now, and the numbers in January are going to be much better than the numbers in December, which we haven't seen yet, but our Bill Malugin ha- is reporting will, will be the highest and worst ever. So it's not saying much that you're improving uh, fr- from from that starting point. And next segment, we're going to talk about the, the congressional action or inaction on this issue. But first, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, the podcast, How the World Works, from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. They are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast, hosted by author and political commentator familiar to all of us, Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives, from flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe. Some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that inform their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both of whom, of course, are old friends and colleagues of all of us here at NR for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash how the world works. That's cei.org slash how the world works. So Maddie, there's been a lot of speculation and anticipation about a border deal between Senate Republicans and the White House. There have even been leaked provisions the last couple of weeks about what this deal will have in it. Uh, for instance, a, a trigger that the, the border will be, that Biden can close the border if you know we're getting more than, was it 5,000 a day or something, or 3,000 a day, something where it's actually his responsibility to close the border now, and he doesn't need any additional you know authority or say-so from Congress to do it, but um, this deal was conceived as a way to get Israel uh, and Ukraine funding through uh, Congress by giving Republicans what what they wanted on the border, and therefore Republicans would go along on Ukraine funding. And just the other day, Mitch McConnell said, "You know what? Donald Trump says he doesn't want this. We wouldn't want to undermine him, and it's looking like this isn't going to happen. And it is indeed looking like this isn't going to happen. What do you make of it?" So 
the a, a potential border deal is high stakes for both Democrats and re- Republicans. Um, so for from the Democrats in terms of Ukraine funding, uh, the, the Pentagon's are already warning that Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines could run out of ammunition if this if a deal doesn't go through. You know, Chuck Schumer's been very forthright in saying that the future of the war in Ukraine and the security of Western democracy depends on Congress reaching an agreement. So they're clearly feeling the pressure. But to be honest, like Republicans presumably are feeling the pressure as well, or at least they should be if they're serious that this is a a crisis, um, what's happening at the southern border. I mean, 300,000 migrants attempted to cross uh, last month alone. Obviously, you've you've noted that we should expect it to... A, a decline um, after the Biden administration's talks with Mexico, but this is still a, a huge humanitarian issue, and certainly that is the rhetoric that Republicans use when they talk about this issue. So to forego the possibility of reaching a deal to let the the perfect or Donald Trump's imagined perfect deal be the enemy of the good here and let this continue for months, I think is a bit of a known goal. Either this is a serious issue that needs to be addressed urgently, in which case they should be doing everything they can to reach a deal, even if it's not the most perfect deal. Um, or this is just, you know, their political enemy's vulnerability and they're just going to treat it opportunistically. Now, there might be a political argument for doing that, but there's certainly not a moral argument for doing that. And also in the long run, I think it becomes clear that you're not sincere in this being a crisis and one that you have to act on quickly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's a great move by, uh, by Mitch McConnell. So, Charlie, the, the Republicans obviously had kind of whip hand in the, these negotiations because they don't really care about Ukraine funding. And the Biden administration does. And this dy- dynamic was set up where the Biden administration needs to make concessions on immigration in order to get something it really wants and something Republicans don't want. And what what's happened, you know, partly under the uh, prodding of Trump, but a- also just Republicans thinking this through themselves, they, they, they're they increasingly of the point of view, well, you know what? Biden can do this stuff himself. He doesn't need us. Um, and even if we give him additional authorities, there's no guarantee he's going to use them. So why do we even need a border deal? So the, the deal was we were going to get the border stuff in order to get Ukraine, but we don't really want Ukraine and we don't really want the border stuff either. So why are we doing this? Yeah, so Rich, I hope you're sitting down because you're about to hear me do two things in the same answer. The first is not blame Congress for a problem. And the second is not criticize Donald Trump for cynical maneuvering. (laughs) This is not one other person in the room to be blamed. Look, this is not Congress's fault. This is the President of the United States declining to uphold his oath of office and enforce federal law. It's not about funding. It's not about permission. It's not about delegated powers. Joe Biden doesn't want to do this. They're ripping down razor wire, not because they don't have enough money. Joe Biden doesn't want to enforce the border. This is a problem with the executive branch. Congress can give Biden what he wants over and over again. He's not going to take it. This isn't a writ of mandamus they're debating. He is declining to do his job. He will continue to do that. This is one of those strange inversions of our constitutional system. Biden could veto a law making it easier for him to enforce the border. He is doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, and there's very little anyone can do about it, except replace him with someone else. 
And I don't like the fact that the Republican Party rolls over every time that Donald Trump says anything. And I don't like the fact that that seems to be the impetus here as well. But I do actually think there's some perverse logic to what Trump is saying here. The way you fix this is to replace Joe Biden with a president who will enforce immigration law. Now, I don't want that to be Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is probably going to be the nominee. It is probably a good thing civically if Donald Trump runs as the Republican nominee and says, if you vote for me, I will change our policy on the border, given that he's the only person who can do it. This is not a congressional question. In extreme terms, I suppose it is, because the Congress could, if it wanted to, impeach the DHS secretary and the president. But that's not going to happen. Effectively, other than politically, Joe Biden is inoculated against these decisions that he's making. And he believes, I think, that he's going to benefit long term from them. So how do you fix that? You fix that with politics. Is that politics at this point better off in the realm of a presidential election debate than in congressional horse trading? Yeah, there's a strong argument for that. I'm not saying, just to be clear, that that is what has driven Republicans in Congress to acquiesce with Trump's demands. But I am saying if you look at this problem structurally, there is a certain logic to it that I think holds. I just do not see this as one of the many, many, many questions that Congress can fix by getting its act together. Yeah, so MED, I was shaking a little bit. I, I thought it made sense. Well, I support the Ukraine funding, but it made sense to, to force Biden to do more enforcement at the border. And the main means that's been advanced to do that would be to limit his ability to parole all these illegal aliens in. And now it's the White House has been highly uh, resistant to doing that, and that's been presented by various Democrats as, as a red line. So maybe you wouldn't be able to get that. But then I learn, as I learned so much from our friend Center for Immigration Studies, that parole is about 50% of the, the releases. Yeah. You know, so they have all these other means. So even, even if you got an airtight parole provision, they just keep doing what they're doing under you know, different authorities or using different exactly. rationales. Yeah, so maybe just a, a impossible to um, limit a, a, a lawless president. But on the politics there's a, a friend of mine I talk a lot about, uh, talk to a lot, really shrewd political thinker and a major border hawk, makes you look like a squish MBD. And his take on this was, no, you know, there's some comparison to welfare reform in 1996. Bob Dole's going to run against Bill Clinton using welfare reform, the best issue he has. And lo and behold, congressional Republicans cut a deal on welfare reform with Bill Clinton. Dole wasn't going to win anyway, but it did, did erode uh, the case he could make against Clinton. He's like, ah, that's the wrong way to, to look at it. And the the analogy I, I suggested to him that he accepted is, you know, it's more like Jimmy Carter, the Soviets invade Afghanistan, and Jimmy Carter says, I was wrong about the Soviets, and we're not going to do more defense spending. That didn't make people think, well, what we need more of is Jimmy Carter. <laughs> you know, it, it was a, a validation of the case that Ronald Reagan was making. So, um, this friend of mine was saying the same thing would work here. Anything that Biden does to make the border better at the margins by re-implementing actual Trump policies or Trump-like policies is going to make people think, no, we need we need all we need all of Trump, not that we need 
more of Biden. And then he was also making the case that the Maddie was, it just, it, it appears kind of cynical, you know, when you're congressional Republicans, we got to do something about this as a crisis, crisis. Okay, let's do something about, ah, no, 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 uh, we, we won't. And that's, you know, that's obviously what the media and the Democrats are saying it now is how, how terribly and terrible and cynical this is on the part of congressional Republicans. Yeah. And it makes you wonder like what, if Republicans would be better off pursuing a different strategy, you know, sometimes when, you know, I'm disciplining a child and I know that they've set on a course of misbehavior, you know, sometimes I give them more rope to hang themselves, you know, to convict themselves Mm -hmm. in the eyes of their mother or (laughs) their siblings and further in their own eyes. And I think that's the, the debate Republicans need to have among themselves about the politics of walking away from this deal if there is a real deal, right? I mean, I know it's it's still being negotiated, which is that, you know, oh, Democrats are saying, oh, Republicans aren't serious about their wants on the border. This is cynical. They just want a political win for Trump. They want to reserve the crisis for Trump. And I don't know. I don't think anyone, I, I don't think that's going to cut through. I don't think that'll work. But if Republicans want to ensure it won't work, they could just sign a deal and watch Biden not hold up his end of it, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, or Republicans could seek a deal that sort of like really ties the administration's hands in some way. I mean, originally, you know, you'd think something like a border wall, something that like of itself dissuades and repels some amount of illegal immigration. Uh, but the Biden administration would find ways of delaying that or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, yeah, for that's the other point my, my friend makes is like, whatever the number is, uh, monthly crossings that Biden wants to have, he can do it. It's in, within his power, right? One way or the other. Um, so, it, and if he gets new authorities, it might be that he doesn't use them, but they're, they're right there. You know, when, when Trump takes office in, in January of next year, if that, if that happens, but the most ridiculous thing is I, I think Democrats now have, um, a politically will have a politically useful case to make against Republicans if Republicans turn away from this deal. But the idea that they've been saying for three years, advancing for three years, that the, the system was broken and that the border was totally uncontrollable prior to Biden coming into office when Trump had controlled yeah. it and he ripped up everything that was controlled. It's just well, that's the, perverse. That's the thing. I mean, and that's the thing. I, I, I think actually Trump deserves more credit than he's gotten because he changed facts on the ground and you can never go back to this 2006, 2008 era where you could say, oh, well, the whole system is unworkable, so we, we have to come up with a deal to allow in 3 million legal immigrants a year and another 4 million if the if the Chamber of Commerce wants it, uh, and then you can enforce some laws and, and stop people from crossing. Like, you know, Trump demonstrated, you can stop the crisis of the border. It can be, it can be done. And of course it could be done. If Hungary can do this, the United States can do this. You know, um, this this can be done. In fact, it's a minimal thing that a state, modern state should be required to do. And um, so it can be done. Biden does, clearly does not want to do it. He, he sees advantage in this kind of neglect. Um, I think his, his most loyal voters approve of this kind of neglect and, and profit from it. Um, and so it will go on until he's gone. 
So Charlie, I a question to you. We can du- double barrel it. W- will there be a, a border deal? And if the answer is no, will there be another tranche of Ukraine funding? Uh, I think there won't be a border deal. I think there may be another tranche of Ukraine funding because there'll be other things that need doing and they'll mm-hmm. get pushed in with that. I, I should just say, I don't think it is a particularly good idea if they don't believe that it's going to affect Biden's behavior for Republicans to give up something that they don't want to do in order mm-hmm. to get this. I understand mm-hmm. the argument you laid out, and perhaps that's right, and perhaps I'm wrong, but I'm much more cynical on this one. I I think Republicans should want to fund Ukraine, but they don't. So I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't tie right. that to something that is effectively useless. Yeah, useless, yeah. Maddie? Um. I, th- I think there, I think there won't be a deal, but I think there, I think there should be. I think if Republicans have the opportunity to mitigate uh, this problem, even a, even in a small and very limited sense, um, even, you're even showing the intention, the, the desire to mitigate it. Yeah, even showing the intention is that because, like, let's just see their see their gamble, right? Okay, so this is going to help Trump in the fall. Okay, but what if he loses, right? And then you have another four years of Biden or maybe even like Kamala Harris and then you had an opportunity to like do something or at least appear to be doing something and you sat on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there there won't be, but there should be. And um, Ukraine funding, I think there will, I think there will be another uh, push for Ukraine funding. MBD. Oof. You know, it's funny, Congress has really gone longer without approving this package than I thought they would. Um, like I'm, they're surprising me with their lack of appetite for passing another package. Um, yeah, I would, I would say MBD, sorry to interject that uh, it's what's, what's bad for Ukraine hawks like me is it's not as though with the time that passing pressure is building, right? <laughs> it, right. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's like more on the back burner, you know, more off the headlines well, that's the thing, and, and and that's the thing is like suddenly, like people are talking about, like, are we using too many tomahawks in Yemen? Like, like the 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 geopolitical focus, like the like the eye of Sauron has been like turned elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think they will get one through, but it might be less than sixty one billion. Um, they, you know, maybe they'll pass this like. Um, uh, maybe they'll pass this this proposal to take frozen Russian assets and transfer them to Ukraine as a as a kind of stopgap um, instead, um, or or they might replace some of the funding of the sixty one billion with the with the more like rob the Russians to pay the Ukrainians act. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. Yeah, so I don't think there's going to be a border deal. I don't necessarily endorse the views of my friend. By the by the way. Um, I, I've moved on this a little bit my, myself uh, last week in the anti-border deal direction. And then also it matters what actually the deal is. And although there's been some brave talk from Republicans, you know, they're, they're buckling and this is, this is going to be great. I, I'm, I'm not so sure. So it may be that even if you're in favor of a border deal in theory, that the actual border deal that they'll come up with will, will uh, not be worth it. And then I, I kind of think there'll be a, a tranche of... Ukraine funding, you know, barely gets 
barely gets through, and unless something changes, might be kind of the last uh, the, the, the the last tranche of Ukraine funding potentially. Because um, because as we just discussed, this is not an issue this is an issue that's waning rather than waxing. So with that, let's hear from our and happier place if constitutional protections for private property were taken a tad more seriously. That's according to our friends over at the Institute for Justice who have just begun releasing a new season of their legal history podcast, Bound by Oath. Bound by Oath tells a story of how the Supreme Court has cleared the way for government officials to abuse property rights, to trespass on private land without a warrant, to restrict peaceful and productive uses of property, to seize and keep property without sufficient justification and much more, featuring interviews not only with scholars and litigators, but also with real-life people behind some of the Supreme Court's most momentous property rights decisions. The new season explores the history behind today's civil rights battle. So plug Bound by Oath into wherever you get your podcasts and start with episode one. That's Bound by Oath. So, Maddie, it turns out the patriarchy rules after all because the movie Barbie, and we'll have to talk about the merits at some point, because sometimes we disagree about the merits of movies, Maddie. But uh, eight, eight Oscar nominations. This is clearly an outrage. Uh, it needed to get 10. And it was, it's just hilarious that Ryan Gosling, you know, the, the, Ken, the Ken character, gets the Best Supporting Actor nomination. And Margot Robbie, Robbie, I'm not sure how you say her. Uh, say her last name, doesn't get the best actress. And Greta Gerwig, who uh, wrote and directed the movie, doesn't get a a best (laughs) director nomination, even though it got a best picture nomination. So there's been a lot of commentary about this, including from Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton weighed in because she's so in touch with the with the culture, but people saying, and not to reveal too much about the movie, but the, there's this tear in the reality of Barbie world where you start out in the movie and they go into the real world and they're shocked because in Barbie world, it's a matriarchy where these happy uh, Barbie dolls uh, rule and, and the guy dolls are just the, these secondary supporting uh, um, figures. And then they, they find out, no, the real world is like the Ken doll rules and the Ken doll gets his way and the Ken doll comes back and tries to change the change the Barbie world. But everyone's like, see, it is Ken's world after all here, here in our, our uh, reality. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the person I really feel sorry for here is America Ferreira, who won, or who, sorry, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And she, of course, is uh, Ryan Gosling's comparator in this situation. He He's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and a woman was nominated for from Barbie, who, who starred in Barbie, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So what's the issue, right? The issue is that the they were hoping that Margot Robbie was, would get Best Actress. Okay, but the entire category of Best Actress has women yeah. nominees. So you can't exactly <laughs> there is argue that. you can't exactly that sexism. Now for Greta Gerwig. I, use, I stole um, that argument from okay. you, by the way. You, you posted that in the corner. I, I wrote a column about this. I, I stole it without attribution, so my apologies. Oh, you could be president <laughs> of Harvard. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and then the, the, the second point being that um, Greta Gerwig uh, you know, Barbie was a commercial success, but so was what? What's it called, Super mm-hmm. Mario Bros. or whatever? It doesn't necessarily mean it's a particularly interesting. Um, now wait a minute! Movie Did you see Super Mario movie. Brothers? I went. Twice. I didn't. I'm being rather specific. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll take your word for it. But in any case, if you look at the the category for 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 best director. Um, you had the zone of interest. I actually happen to have seen all of these movies, which is kind of unusual for me for Oscar nominations, but the zone of interest, excellent movie, 
um, a, a very original Holocaust movie, which is which is difficult to do because the, that's a very uh, saturated genre. Uh, yeah, poor poor things, or as Americans say, poor things. Um, How do you say which poor, is, poor things? I, I say I say poor, and nobody knows what I'm saying. I'm saying P O O R, which is I, I have to train myself that it's poor, like pour a cup of tea. You know, poor uh, things. That's how you <laughs> poor. Um, Oppenheimer, great movie. Killers of the Flower Moon, amazing uh, movie. Right? Uh, <laughs> Killers get ten. Oh yeah, or uh, yeah, something something like ten, ten or, or maybe eleven. I can't quite remember. Um, and then there is Anatomy of a Fall, which was this another very good movie, actually directed by a woman. So it was a good year for movies, and I think if it had been not quite such a good year for movies and Barbie probably would have picked up those extra nominations, but it didn't. And it just, it's so embarrassing. I mean, in fairness, I, to my knowledge, I, and I could be wrong about this, Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig haven't actually publicly complained about this, but uh, Ryan Gosling's done it for them. And if I were them, I'd be like so mortified that he did that. Um, because, you know, you just look like a sore loser. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, the, the idea that's about sexism is just frankly ridiculous. Yeah, so poor Ryan got, I mean, it's not going to happen now, but if he wins that Oscar, he's going to have he can't go up and accept it, or he's going to have to crush it on stage or, you know, <laughs> hurl it uh, backstage or, or something, you know, uh, because it, he'll, it'll just be so embarrassing for him. So, Charlie, you know, there, there are a bunch of different ways you can look at this, but you know, one is that it'd be one thing if, if, the, if the Academy hated women and as uh, and as Maddie p- points out, all the best actor- actress nominees are women. And the, the woman who got probably what would have been Margot Robbie's place was uh, Annette Bening. It was a 65-year-old actress, and there's been a lot of a chatter. I, I guess just – I don't follow this extremely closely, but justifiably that the, the Academy kind of snubs older uh, actresses. She's 65 years old and played this uh, woman who was a marathon swimmer who was an out lesbian at a time when that wasn't you know net, as, as cool as it is. It is now. So just on feminist grounds, who, who deserves, you know, if you're, you're just doing this politically, who, who's more deserving of that final uh, nomination? And then it's not as though Greta Gerwig has been snubbed by the Oscars. I mean, she directed a Best Picture nominated film and they shoehorned her into a Best, best Adapted Screenplay nomination, even though it's not clear what exactly she was adapting. I mean, this doll exists, but there wasn't like a great novel about Barbie that, that she adapted into a screenplay. And if she wins it because they, they feel guilted into it, well, then then she'll bump this uh, African-American guy, Cord Jefferson, who has a, a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination as well. And let's not feel too sorry for her because you know, the movie made $1.4 billion. And this is her third solo filmmaking venture. And she got nominated for um, uh, multiple uh, Oscars for the first two, Lady Bird and Little Women, neither of which I have seen or plan to see. This is an incredibly stupid way of looking at Oscars, isn't it? Bean counting? So what's the logic here? If you make a movie that is about feminism in some way, then the actresses who are in it have to get more Oscars than the men? Why? There's this joke in Ricky Gervais' show Extras, where Kate Winslet in one episode plays herself, and she says that she's going to do a Holocaust movie because that's how you win an Oscar. Is it? Is it anti-Semitic not to give Holocaust movies 
Oscars? What, what, what? She then, Charlie, she then I know. watched her one I know. Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but she's making fun of herself. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is silly. I mean, it, the, the question is whose performances please those who give out the Oscars? You can't reflect onto that the message of the movie and then take offense if the two don't line up or at least you you shouldn't i just think it's bizarre i think it's why i don't pay any attention to the oscars frankly other than that i'm generally a movie idiot i don't think that the way that it is covered and possibly even considered by those who are involved lines up with the billing which is supposed to go to the best actor or the best director or the best sound editing or what you will, but seems increasingly to have been sucked into our identity-obsessed political world, sometimes explicitly. I don't know the exact details, so I'm sure I'll be corrected on this. But I think the Academy said recently that they were going to explicitly consider this stuff going forward. Well, then give it up. Give it up. And also, please stop condescending to people who aren't white men. I know that this goes more broadly to our question of affirmative action, but it's really not fair to women, to racial minorities, to imply that if they do win something, it was because they deserved it on the page, that you've done the math and you've determined that they deserved it or that they should have it because America is a diverse country or that people in the past who deserve one didn't get one. So you're going to give it to this person or that person. That's just, no one should want to, to win like that. So I, I don't really understand it. I, I, I'm used to it, but I don't, I don't understand it. The question of Barbie's message and the question of who got the nominations for good acting are not related to one another and shouldn't be. And I will note that I have not seen anyone who is engaged in this debate suggesting that everyone in America walked out of that movie and said, you know what, Margot Robbie's acting was just astonishing, <laughs> and if she doesn't win an Oscar, she should feel cheated. No, that's not what the argument is. The argument is he's a man, she's not, therefore. Well, you can count me out of that. Yeah, so MBD, a lot of people point to the seeming disparity between getting a Best Picture nomination and not having the director who directed the Best Picture get the Best Director or the the actress who was the, uh, the, the, the main, you know, they couldn't have done this movie without Margot Robbie, effectively. I mean, she, she was perfect for the role of Barbie, not that it was a particularly complex role. I mean, she is impossibly gorgeous and she played a perfect looking plastic doll. You know, it's not the most challenging role she's had. But the the Academy, as my friend John Carlos Sopo points out, they went to, well, first of all, this is not unusual. It's happened before with, I think, Jaws, where they, best picture, but they skip over the director and the the actor, main actor and actress and go to supporting uh, Towering Inferno. Um, it's happened with a, a number of films. And now it just Art, has to happen, cool. right? So Because they went several years ago to 10 best pictures and you only get five best directors. So as a matter of math, necessarily, at least five of these directors aren't going to get the, the nomination. Yeah, and that's why, that's also why they do makeup calls like, all right, well, if we can't put them in the best director category, but they wrote the screenplay, like they fit into the screenplay award category as Greta Gerwig did. 
Hollywood loves Greta Gerwig. Uh, I'm sorry, but like, it, there's no doubt about that in my mind, given that everything she's directed has been critically acclaimed and loved by Hollywood and honored by the Academy. And she's proceeded very quickly from indie film darling to being trusted with an adaptation like Barbie, you know, of like uh, of something where we're going to give you like a nine figure budget to do this gigantic project. And then she delivered like one of the biggest box box office hits in years, right? Like a total phenomenon. So there's no, like, I just reject the premise that she's not getting respect. And um, on the other hand, like if the feminists want to complain, they should blame her because she wrote all the best lines for Ryan Gosling in that film. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's winning. That's why he won this Mm -hmm. nomination is because so did you, did you see Barbie? I, I did. Mean, uh, you guys finally saw. It. I spent weeks because I'm so in touch. Can we talk about Barbie? But no, no one saw it. No, for me. Uh, now you guys, I, 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 we have caught We up. finally, you know, when it went to streaming, we finally, you know, we put it on. Watched with my daughter. My daughter hated it. Um, <laughs> you know, because it was too, it was too abstract. You know, it was right. this weird film about you know the the caricaturing of patriarchy and uh, feminism. And actually, I so, so do you. Think I actually think feminist I, propaganda are more complex. I think Gerwig was actually trying to come up with actually like a, a pretty. I think she was aiming at a pretty profound statement with this film about like how these categories we talk about them in a way that's totally false to our experience and much more like a Ken and Barbie world than the real world, and and in fact, men and women get along together, and it's very womanly to have kids and. Like, I think she was going for like a very almost reactionary message um, with this film, but like Ken is the most entertaining part of it, and like by leagues, yeah. and that's why he's there. Yeah, I mean, he, he almost—I I don't think you can ever steal a show personally from Margot Robbie, but but he came as close as you can come. <laughs> yeah. So, so Maddie, where where are you? Uh, we'll just uh, last thing, and then then we'll uh, move on. But so so, what do you think about this? Question: There are a lot of critics that uh, say th- this was just agitprop and painful to sit through, and then others that say, "Look, that this was a this was a film." As MBD was just saying, w- w- that was more more profound than that and making a more complex point. I acknowledge the latter point, but I the way I experienced was as the former. Just most of the time, I was rolling my eyes and groaning. I was like, when is this, you know, it's so predictable. It's so tendentious. When is this going to end? But it did have some amusing moments. But anyway, where where are you on the the film itself? So the first 30 minutes were quite amusing and interesting. And then as it went on, it got more and more tedious. And there was still the occasional laugh. Uh, I thought Weird Barbie was was very funny and Ken had some good lines. So, I, I, you know, I had the, the occasional laugh, but I just, I thought it was too abstract. I thought that um, it it's the points it was trying to make weren't, weren't completely clear. And so people were able to project whatever their preferred narrative was. And that, that was true for both both um, feminist types and reactionary types, which sometimes is a sign of a movie's success if it can be read in multiple ways. But in this case, I thought it was a sign of its, its incoherence, actually. Um, so, you know, it, it won some points for kind of novelty and uh, creativity and humor, but it was mostly a letdown. 
So, Charlie, in terms of sheer hilarity, the controversy over the Barbie Oscar nominations, rate it from zero to 10. Zero is not funny at all. 10, it just doesn't get any more hilarious than this. Um, I mean, I'm almost entirely indifferent to it because I don't care about the Oscars. I suppose if you think it's funny to watch people who you think are very silly getting upset, then it's a seven or eight. But I just, I, I must say, I just wish we didn't do this. I, I would love to mm-hmm. go back to a time when we didn't filter every single question through the immutable characteristics of the people involved. And we do. That's that's what we do now. That's what journalism is. That's what everything is. And that fever needs to break at some point. And it hasn't. MBD. Um. Yeah, I would. It's like an eight, you know, very, very meretricious and silly, especially in light of the fact that probably the nominees from Oppenheimer are going to destroy this film in uh, in the awards anyway. Did you like Oppenheimer? Oh yeah, I really did. And but I'm also the crazy person who thinks it kind of indicated straws. Um, Like even though like they show the downfall of Strauss at the end. It, I feel like the way the movie was cut together, it really vindicated the case against Oppenheimer. Um, even while you can watch it and come to a different conclusion than the, uh, well, you're saying Gerwig might, might've, you know, what she intended was different than a lot of people took away. But, the, but I think the, uh, you know, Oppenheimer is supposed to be pro Oppenheimer. Actually, you can, you can watch it and say, nah, nah, actually they, they should have taken away his security. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think they, I think it's both, it's both true that it portrays it as a stitch up, but it also portrays it as a justified stitch up. Yeah. They stitched um, up a guilty man. Well, not only that, but they also like they're right about, uh, Oppenheimer's kind of, um, Hamlet act, uh, after the bomb. And, if there's a nomination for best supporting, 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 supporting actor, it should go to whoever portrayed Harry Truman in that movie. Oppenheimer is so great. Oh, that's um, <laughs> that's uh, Gary Oldman. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, yeah, yeah. I love that scene, and, it, and apparently it's real. You know, it may not have been quite well, as strong as that. No, but, no. He, well, he literally said those words. That's almost verbatim. Well, I looked thing, it up after. I think there's a question whether he said them in Oppenheimer's presence. But oh, true, uh, true. But the, the, the thing is, is that the that, that film. So this is kind of a total detour. All the best lines are given to Oppenheimer's critics, like mm-hmm. his wife when he tells him, "You can't commit the sin and then make us feel sorry." For you when you reap the consequences like mm-hmm. like which could have been the theme of the film right and downey jr says a similar line and you know like all the people get great lines off of him um so anyway i think it's a brilliant film and uh i actually am kind of curious about the awards how they go this year i, I was listening to a podcast recently with this guy evan thomas former journalist who's now has a second life as a historian. He wrote this book, Road to Surrender, about the the war in the Pacific. And he, he I had forgotten this or didn't know this. I, we were apparently really close to dropping a third bomb on Tokyo in the burned out areas from 
from the incendiary bombs to kind of so so the emperor would be able to see the flash, but we wouldn't kill him. That was the idea, just to kind of nudge him, <laughs> nudge him wow. further towards surrender. But they they surrendered. I before. didn't know that. Yeah, before we did that. So Maddie, zero to ten on the hilarity scale. Um, I I think it elicited a wry chuckle, which puts me at probably at six, and uh, not not sort of oh. thigh slapping hilarity, which would have been a ten. So only a Scottish person could have wry chuckle <laughs> at six on their laugh scale. You, <laughs> what, what does it take for you to get into hysterics? Twelve, fifteen? I don't know. Not not this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so slapping my thigh that puts us the the. The, the scale kind of uh, <laughs> uh, changes the scale, but I was a 9.5. I just, you know, I, I wasn't actually guffawing, but it's just the whole thing. It's, it's, it's so hilarious and, and so much fun with that. Let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. If you've enjoyed what you have heard here, if you are, are, are stunned by the range of NR writers who can dis- discuss constitutional matters and policy matters and pop culture and do it all so compellingly and with such insight you must subscribe through nr plus our digital subscription service it's uh, we got first time deals running in at really any given moment doesn't cost you much and is a really important way to support our valuable journalism so if you haven't signed up already please join tens of thousands of your fellow national Review readers as a member of nr plus with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, speaking of movies, you've been rewatching Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so in December was the 20th anniversary of the first Lord of the Rings film being released in theaters, I think. Um, and I didn't manage to watch it in December, but uh, January came around. It's on some of the streaming services. And I hadn't watched these films in many years because getting through them the first time felt like a little bit of a chore, but man, they really are like the pinnacle of Hollywood filmmaking and, and uh, magic making. And, and I just can't, I cannot believe that source material that good got that handsome of a treatment by corporate <laughs> figures like Miramax. Uh, like it would never happen today. So it's kind of a miracle we have those films, and um, I'm grateful that my kids will have them. So, Maddie, you were hosting your brother in the city. Yeah, my my brother um, decided like last Wednesday that he was going to come stay with us for the weekend, <laughs> which which is like unusual when you know there's a there's an ocean to cross. But it was uh, yeah, it was really fun. We went and saw Spamalot on Broadway, which I actually wouldn't recommend. It's it's based on Monty Python, and so the funny bits are Monty Python bits, and then they've added in a bunch of other stuff and some woke stuff. So, but we we had we didn't pay a lot for the tickets, so that's fine. Um, and we went to a um, piano bar, which is just such a fun thing to do in New York, um, and had a very spontaneous, uh, expensive weekend. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Charlie, you've been watching Fool Me Once on Netflix. I have. My parents recommended this, knowing that British murder mysteries or murder mystery-ish type shows are very popular in the Cook household. And they weren't wrong. It really is good. We're halfway through. There's eight episodes. We've watched four of them. So if you have Netflix, I would recommend this. So I mentioned this book a a while ago when we were talking about Robert Kagan's op-ed in the Washington Post about how Trump is a budding 
dictator, the ghost at the feast. It's about uh, American foreign policy from the beginning of the 20th century to 1941. And wow, what a talented guy Kagan is as a historian. I, I'm not sure I, I buy uh, all his in- interpretations, but it's very revisionist on Woodrow Wilson, says Woodrow Wilson was uh, realistic and, and pragmatic and, and right, basically, in all the calls he made. And the basic argument is that everything that went wrong in the 30s in Europe could have been influenced to the better if the U.S. hadn't been uh, so naive and short-sighted and uh, isolationist, which strikes me as probably exaggerated and, and simplistic, but Kagan makes the case in, in a very uh, cogent and compelling way and is extremely well-written book. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? My pick is Joel Zinberg's When Science is Not Science. Um, just he, he kind of goes through a survey of all of the junk that was pushed on the public during the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's ruined public trust in science. And he says, we'll be recovering a long time from the evidence-free science that was pushed during that time. I think he's right. Maddie, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Andy McCarthy's um, it's not Texas. that's defying the law. It's Biden. I just think Andy is just so cogent on so many things. And I'm reminded of, the, of this whenever I listen to um, other podcasts and I hear him cited uh, as a source and I just realized how lucky we are to have him. So highly recommend that. Here, here, Charlie. I'm going to pick the same one. It's terrific. It's better legal analysis than you read at any other website. We are fortunate in our coverage. I always wonder how Slate ended up with literally the two worst, <laughs> the two worst legal writers in the world working at the same time adjacent to each other. Well, we have two of the best in Andy and Dan McLaughlin, and I'm always grateful for that. I I was going to have exactly the same pick. This this might be a first spontaneous, uh, near unanimous pick. Uh, we, we did do a planned unanimous pick when Kyle Smith did his uh, – fantastic series on Jill Biden's uh, dissertation, <laughs> the three-part series. <laughs> um, but instead, I'll, I'll go to Noah Rothman. There's something I just posted, and we, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. This ep, ep, maybe we'll talk about the first ep next week when we actually have Noah on, a weak and confused case against Israel at the international, so-called, we should say, international court so that's it for us you've been listening to a national review podcast and you rebroadcast retransmission or count this game without the express written permission of national review magazine is strictly prohibited this podcast has been produced by the incomparable sarah shuddy who makes us sound better than we deserve thank you charlie thank you maddie thank you mbd thanks to bound by oath and how the world works and thanks especially to all of you for listening we're the editors we'll see you next time